Hello and welcome to the very 124th Shut Up and Sit Down podcast. We're here today talking about board games, board games and some other board games. I'm looking forward to the board games. I'm really excited for the board, board games. games. Do you like board games? Love them. If em. you don't, you might not want to listen to this podcast. Oh, I no, wasn't you should. You, Tom. you should. Oh dear, it's this has all hobby. gone wrong. Board games. <laughs> Okay, we are going to be talking about Master Words, a lovely little word game that I think we quite like the sound of, maybe. We're going to get be getting our tongues all over Sticky Chameleons, but don't worry, that's not as disgusting as it sounds, or maybe it is. We're going to be talking about Alhambra, a game of palaces, and we're going to complain about how big those palaces are. We're going to talk about <laughs> Merv, a game about lots of little cubes, and we're going to say it's very pretty. But maybe there's problems. And then we're going to talk about a game that we really, really loved and uh, are really excited to talk about, which is Beyond the Sun. And we're going to go beyond the podcast, judging by like how long we've been recording. <laughs> oh, OK. I guarantee you started that sentence with no idea where it was going. And then you just saved it at the end. How could you possibly tell? <laughs> <laughs> I also worried that I've given away the time travel thing of the fact that we jumped back to the beginning to talk about things. And I wasn't Don't talking in the future enough. Don't tell them all the secrets. I know, but I said that we've already been recording for t- two hours. And that's not even true. But like, how could we have been doing that when we've only been saying board games 20 times? I am Ava Foxfort. And I'm joined today by Quinton Smith. Hello, Ava Foxfort. And Tom Brewster. Hello, Tom Brewster. <laughs> Hang on. What? <laughs> oh, it's me. Let's do a podcast. I have played a little dabbling of Masterword, the latest game from Scorpion Mask, designed by Gerald Cacio. Uh This is... In a lot of ways, an unholy merger of decrypto and code names into this sort of new freaky form. Um, essentially, it's a completely co-op game where one person is the guide and the rest of the players are seekers. And the guide knows a secret word and the seekers must guess it. And how do they guess it? Uh, they've got a vague category to go off, like animal or edible or edible animal, and then they must narrow it down by writing clues onto cards under a strict 90 second time limit. So for example, if the category was animal, you might write a clue like furry or lives under the sea. And then after that 90 seconds, once everyone's written a clue, the guide gets to indicate with these little thumbs up tokens how many of those clues are correct, but not which ones. So three out of the five clues might be on the right track or something like that. Added into this system, there are two little wrinkles. Once per game, the guide can place a token on a very specific card to show that that one is definitely correct. And also the second wrinkle is if the seekers ever write the word that's on the card on one of their clues, they instantly lose the game. Um, what? <laughs> so you, which, okay, I also had that reaction. I'm going to go ahead and say it. It didn't happen at all, and it I was never felt I was in any danger of that happening at all. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, but maybe it might later on. Because one thing that I thought was interesting, we actually before this before this podcast, we had a little discussion about about campaign games. In a way, one could view Master Word as a campaign game. I'm listening. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, not really. It has like two. It's what? Right, it has, <laughs> I'm taking you on an absolute emotional roller coaster. 
those cards that have things on it, they're about like, I think they're about 300 of those words to guess and they get progressively more and more difficult. So uh, spoilers. Actually, I don't want to spoil what the last one is, but I've, I saw the last one because I'm not going to play 300 games of Master Word. Um, but the last one is, I do not understand how you would ever get to that word without everyone having like a good knowledge of like classics. Um, oh, what? Is wow. it like Dante's Inferno? What, like, is it a piece of literature? <laughs> My lips are sealed uh, for Master Word spoilers. What's the category? Give us the category. I think it's like historical figure. Um, it does speak well of the game that we've heard the concept and then Ava and I are sort of chomping to play the game, kind <laughs> of. What's the Master Word? <laughs> I do definitely see how, like, the thing is that when you're looking to round stuff down, you're almost always going to be talking about categories or distinctive features rather than actually using proper noun. Like, yes, proper noun. yes. Using, uh, how do you say proper nouns when you just mean like the right nouns instead of proper nouns with a capital P? Correct nouns. The correct nouns. I don't know. <laughs> you know, you, you get what I'm saying, even if yes, I'm yes. expressing myself weirdly. Um, so you aren't going to actually put that thing on. Although I guess it's a little bit of a thing to nudge you into not being able to do that. It stops people from just being able to do... Because there is that thing, there's a certain sort of guessing game where someone says the answer and someone just immediately happens to say the exact thing because it's the first thing that comes into their heads. And that's mm. kind of great when it happens, but also does defeat the game completely. <laughs> yes. So it's nice to be able to cut out the equivalent of me every single time I ever play the uh, guard card in love letter i always say have you got the princess because when people have the princess and you guess it right on the first term it annoys them so much <laughs> i was about to say you do that that's horrible because you, you take a round of love letter where someone's like oh my goodness this is going to be so fun and then you just end that fun it's a selfish selfish act <laughs> no it's fun <laughs> It's fun well, for everyone that... at the table apart from that person and that person thinks you're a wizard. Mm. No, they think you've... Because they've seen you ask, "Is the, have you got the princess over and over again to no effect? And they know it's... <laughs> I don't know. More often than not, it just does happen. More often than not, it just does work. I swear. Or they think you're a cheat. A wizard, Tom. A wizard. A wizard cheat. I mean, if you're a wizard, wouldn't you just cheat all the time? That's, that's very much Gandalf's MO. What is a wizard if not a cheat of life? Uh, Tom, can, can you... <laughs> Please get us back on track about Masterword. <laughs> I did like Masterword. Um, it's you're you're right in thinking that it has, it has lots of nice moments. Um, it's it's a setup that you think is going to be really simple, especially when the first card. This is a spoiler. The first card I think is like cow, um, and immediately the entire game got completely derailed because I didn't think that a cow had fur. Like one of the clues was fur, Ooh. and then it immediately creates that post-game discussion where, like, my friends were just screaming at me. Well, why didn't you just like if you'd have put a token on fur, we would have got it? Because they spent the entire round convinced that it lived in the sea because that was one of the other clues. <laughs> <laughs> and it has that feeling in, in Decrypto of being the really sort of frustrated, uh, sort of like you feel like you're herding like a bunch of children because you, you're really frustrated as you as you watch every single player completely derail the discussion. Um, based on on one red herring because they've all got an idea of exactly what it is in their mind that you know they think it's the princess in love letter if you will and they're, and they're dead set that that's what it is so they're writing clues to that end and then you're putting no tokens down every turn and they're like I don't know what we're doing wrong do you have some kind of is it, 
do you have to just keep in your head what's been said before or is there some kind of like permanent record of the things that are there yeah you write them on cards okay okay so each, each turn yeah so each each round you're writing the clue onto a card and putting it down in a row and then there's like and then each you have you have a if you're playing a full five six player game you have a full hand of like one card per round each so there'll be yeah, it's, it's max is six. So you'll have five clues per round over the course of six rounds to form yeah. this big grid of clues. Oh, so the grid is just getting bigger all the time. It's not like yes. resetting. Oh. Every turn, it just gets a little bit bigger. So you, you sort of end up like you're navigating, you're looking at that thing and you're, and you're sort of like plotting out a course almost. Like which two, if, you, if these two clues yeah. are correct and you go into the next row, then this one and this one are correct and so on and so forth. Right. So, the, and it's kind of like, you you so if you you do a thing they say that like half of these clues are correct you assume it's the wrong half and you start going <laughs> and then it's just like your number of correct doesn't go up at all and mm. it's like okay so it's not to do with any of that change stuff. of plan yes we know yeah, it's not correct. about that and it's which means it's probably not about this side of things so yeah i'm trying to work out how you're able to like build up that venn diagram in your mind and how complicated and confusing that is it sounds nice it is nice yeah. It is. It's nice. You know, I think yeah. as I was talking about this, uh, like I've got some notes in front of me and I said that it would be great in those notes. I said it's great for families because it's a I don't know if this is a game that I would want to get to the table. I, it, it's, it's speaking of Venn diagrams. It's a weird Venn diagram of people that I'd recommend this game to, because I think that still like for most groups, I still think Decrypto is going to be a better choice for a game that is about guessing words um and i think that the co-op aspect might turn a few people off um but i that being said i think it'd be great for families in that there's this deck of 200 or 300 words or whatever and they're in numbered order so it gets gradually harder and i can imagine as you develop sort of more of a strategy collectively with that same group over and over again it becomes a more and more rewarding game each time it also sits in a lovely little pocket where it's less stressful in in the scorpion mask oeuvre uh, it's less stressful than stay cool and less competitive than decrypto um, but it's still got enough bite in it that i think if you think this is right for your group i would recommend it if that makes sense i'm i'll just big up the concept of novelty here because you know we've had some really good word games recently as you said you know we've got code names which is obviously a classic there's decrypto we had just one recently which was another co-op pen writing on blank card word guessing game <laughs> um and those are all great games but i mean th there's a lot just because you might have those games in your collection already doesn't mean that you don't also maybe want to get master word by the sounds of things i would rather play master word than decrypto or code names or just one just because i've played those games so much i i would happily welcome a similar but different game in that genre i i kind of i almost disagree a little bit which is weird because i'm Ooh. positive about master word i think it's really good but i think i don't even with those 300 cards in the game i think for some groups it'll be perfect I think for families it'll be really good because i think that it because that lack of conflict means that it's always going to be you're always going to have a rewarding game at the end of the day or you're going or or you're going to have a new way of looking at things but with, with a game like i think decrypto is just it's like a perfect design i don't think i'm ever going to get bored of decrypto like i know that sounds ridiculously hyperbolic but i think that decrypto is a game you can put in front of different people and they can approach it in completely different ways every single time whereas with master word there is a sort of regimented way of looking at the game there is a way that you play there's a there's a pursuit of mastery there's a closing the net that happens each time that will only 
if you're playing it with the same group each time, it will get more and more rewarding. But if you're playing it with different groups, you'll just be watching that same learning process happen each time, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's the main thing that I'm worried about. As soon as you said that there's like 300 cards that you can progress through and you'll slowly get better and better at it, I'm like, wait a second, this sort of word game is the sort of game that I play when I'm meeting random people, when I've got a new group of people over for, for a party or something, and knowing that it's just going to get harder and harder for each new group i put it in front of <laughs> yeah that exactly is, that is awful <laughs> oh but um, counterpoint one of my favorite things about pictomania um our favorite drawing game as well joint favorite maybe with along with fake artist goes to new york is that there are cards of difficulty settings but i so love it when party games include a difficulty setting that is just absurdly hard <laughs> which is what tom's also describing in masterword because we talk about these games being accessible and good for families which is true but if you have a group of adults or you know uh, if you're at a party or you know something that's just a little more grown up then being able to pivot the game just like, hey do you want to try something really hard is in my experience just such a source of joy everyone sharing this obscenely mm. difficult puzzle I really, really like that feature. And that's great, actually, isn't it? Because that's actually, that could turn this into a, like, two-hour game where you play multiple sessions in a row and you just move, like, a centimetre through the deck each time. Yeah, I, I would like that. I like the sound of this. I'm very tempted. I'm very tempted. I suspect I'm going to end up buying a copy of this before this podcast goes out so that it doesn't... <laughs> so that <it's>, uh... <laughs> I, I do feel very warm-hearted when you two take part in the sort of shut up and sit down staff insider trading uh, <laughs> goes on. I have a segue onto um, another game, which is exactly the same size box, another party game that's maybe not excellent, but was nonetheless something I feel very warmly towards. Um, I played Sticky Chameleons, designed by Cedric Babe and Theo Riviere, published by ELO. Um, Sticky Chameleons is a game about playing a sticky chameleon. What you're gonna do, you're gonna get all these little thin cardboard insects of different colors and shapes, dragonflies and beetles. You're gonna scatter them across your table with wild abandon. And then you're going to pick up your sort of tool that you use to play the game, which is, uh, I can't even remember if there's a chameleon, but it's what you're holding is a chameleon's tongue <laughs> made of one of those like marvelously sort of sciencey materials i say sciencey because i imagine it as the kind of thing you get in a science museum gift shop the greatest repository of science known to man <laughs> the science museum <laughs> gift shop. yes i mean where else would they put the best science but the science museum gift shop come on i think the uk covid vaccines are actually being distributed from the science museum gift shops around the country <laughs> if i'm correct um but no you two will have played with this as kids no matter how sort of deprived your childhood i think like you know those things that like sticky extendable sort of um coils that you can flick out and then they will stick to walls they'll stick to ceilings they'll stick to tables you can pick things up with them i can imagine it's the same material they used to make these like gray sticky aliens out of that you could buy in there's a shop near me that used to sell them they were like in pods and they're like sticky yes. aliens you could throw at a wall and they'd stick to the wall yeah. and there was a legend that if you put two of them in the same pod they'd have a baby <laughs> the best rumor <laughs> that is so good yeah basically wherever you are from in the world you know that childhood toy where you throw it at a wall and it stays there that's what the tongues in sticky comedians are made from um but then what happens in the game is everyone's got a tongue you roll a dice or two dice sorry one of which shows a color and one of which shows a shape of insect so you might get red dragonfly and everyone has to pick up the red dragonfly from the table using 
you guessed it, the chameleon's tongue. Gotcha. So you all sort of have to like blat it against the table. <laughs> blat is the right word. Is I it? know. As soon as I said that, I was like, yeah, that was the right word. Um, so thank you for appreciating that, Tom. Um, you blat it against the table and then hopefully you pick up the right insect. But the really important rule about sticky comedians that turns it from like a dumb novelty into something that me and my friends played for at least 25 minutes is that you to win you have to not just pick up the comedian with your tongue but then you have to use your other free hand to take it off the tongue and put it on the table in front of you <laughs> so what that means is the sticky comedians is a game of everyone flinging the tongue at the table Maybe you all miss or pick up the wrong thing and then you have to detach that from your tongue, but probably one person will get the insect, but they haven't won yet. What happens next is all the other players just flinging their tongues at that player <laughs> in a hopeless attempt to try and get the insect off that other chameleon's tongue. Um, and I think in about tw at least 25% of the rounds we played, that ended up with the good insects leaving the table and being flung into some corner of my living room. <laughs> And then it's just a beautiful scramble of everyone <laughs> running over to the corner of the room, blatting their tongue against like my carpet or like behind my sofa to try and pick up this like flimsy like uh, ladybug or whatever. Um, oh, that's my American wife's influence saying ladybug instead of the British word ladybird. <sighs> One of the greatest um, Englishisms of the English language. Uh, yeah, sticky comedians. That's what the game is. Is dumb. It is probably the game I'm going to be buying for my nieces uh, for Christmas. It's not in our Christmas gift guide. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> Let yeah. this be an addendum. You can also get sticky chameleons if you want to blat a tongue against a table. I guess you could do that, you know, anyway, but this makes it okay. It makes it significantly more, but not entirely hygienic. <laughs> um, as opposed to just like licking cardboard insects off the... I will say, I don't know how much of a negative point this is, or, or possibly just reflective of how much fun we were having, but it's the game I've played in the last three years where the most components have ended up lost after one game. <laughs> um, I, have, I do have concerns about longevity and I feel like those mm. sticky things... Not in terms of I think I'll ever get bored of it because I think that as long as I can put it in front of new people, it'll be fine. But in terms of like sticky tongues don't last forever, especially not if you're blatting them at the carpet. Yeah. Yes. Yes. All of this is true. However, I will say that the game puts every tongue in its own plastic container in the box. <laughs> so you can put the tongues, like you can sort of store the tongues to maximize their longevity. Carefully seal the tongues. I hear that the uh, the deluxe edition comes with tongue cleaning fluid as well that you can dip the tongues into and <laughs> I don't get out of the tongue fluff. cleaning fluid. Look, if you go, go to your local science museum gift shop and ask them. <laughs> how to clean the or like rejuvenate these where do you keep the tongue fluid <laughs> <laughs> ice cream as i am dragged out of the gift shop i've been playing alhambra by dirk hen on the board game arenas um and i wanted to talk about it because for the second time this year which i actually think is a bit of a scam uh it is on kickstarter and it is a quite old but quite solid a little bit fusty euro game with some simple ideas in it 
Um, whether that means you want to back the big box Kickstarter that comes with 26 mini expansions, I don't know. I haven't 26. paid any mini expansions. I, I didn't believe him either, but I just at that moment scrolled down to the Kickstarter oh page. It really does have 26 goodness. expansion modules. It's got 26 modules. expansion modules and you can optionally buff it up with the designer's module, oh which is goodness. like a whole box with uh, expansions by other people with names that I have failed to pronounce correctly, so I'm not going to say them. But some Euro game designers you may recognise. Stefan Feld, I can say that one. Michael Schack, <laughs> I can say that one. Rudiger Dorn. Uh, it's a great name, isn't it? Rudiger Dorn. Um, yeah, so, right. What's Alhambra? Let's ignore all of this faff and modules and extra bits that you can add and just get down to the core game. It's a tile-laying game where you build a little palace. Some of the tiles have walls on and you've got to make them connect around the outside. Otherwise, it doesn't really matter where you place stuff. Um, every tile has a different value in terms of numbers, but when they come out onto the market, they get laid into a place that is basically indicating... The idea is that you've been building a palace and you've got... Um, in uh, uh, is, is, is Alhambra in Spain? I can't remember. Someone told me this. Let's say yes. <laughs> you're building something and you're on the border of several different large nations and places, which means that you're, get, and you're getting the best architects in the world to come and build your palaces and seraglios and arcades and all of this stuff. But that means you've got to pay for everything in different currencies because they're coming from different places. So the tiles that you buy all go into a different slot on the market board, which means that you're either paying for them with yellow, blue, orange, or green coins. Mm. So on your turn, you're either buying one of these tiles to put into your palace, or you're collecting money from like a secondary money market um, where you're either allowed to take one card or multiple cards if they all add up to less than five. Um, and so you're trying to get lots of different currencies, and it's got... so okay that's basically it that's basically the whole game three times during the game there's an area can there's a majorities thing where if you've got the most of a certain thing you'll score points and if you've got the second most and the second phase you'll score some more points if you've got second or third most in the third scoring phase at the very end of the game you'll score points or less points if you're second and third blah 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 points 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 the nice rule in this game, it's one of my favourite rules to teach, and I've already spoiled this joke twice in the game's news because I just love it a little bit too much, probably more than <laughs> it's actually proportionate. Just like in real life, if you pay with exact change, you get an extra turn. <laughs> uh, which I just really like. I like there being something satisfying about like, oh, that costs five, and I can afford to pay six for it, but if I wait a turn and get that, then I'll be able to do it and do a little extra thing mm. doing an extra thing was good paying with correct changes inherently satisfying um and yeah it's it's all right it's not amazing a ava let me tell you where i'm at i'm looking at pictures of the new art on kickstarter i think the tile majority but some tiles have walls looks kind of cool collecting coins and trying to have really nice turns where you pick a load of green coins sounds cool paying with exact change sounds really satisfying this is like kind of this is a little bit of what i fancy at the minute this is like a euro game that's like simple and classic it is it, but, it, it is it feels like it comes from an era where euro games were not like let's throw a whole load of things on the table and make them mesh together but just like let's do something quite simple well yes although now i have i have a question 
why are there six big box expansions? <laughs> and that's only six of the 26 expansion modules. I have absolutely no idea. I can't imagine wanting to make this more complicated because it's just far. It, it, it is a smooth, elegant thing. There might be some really, really clever things in there. Um, if you get, if you really enjoy it, I suspect that there are people out there who will be like, oh, I really like this. But it is actually like, you know, the scoring super simple. There could be a little bit more interest, a little bit more ability to kind of control things or score extra points for doing weird things. And I'm sure they've got some really nice ideas in those 26 plus. Uh, <laughs> uh, 26 plus 17 modules <laughs> wow. i'm not even going to do that's the maths so on that many. that's too many numbers so many. it's so many and it's i don't i don't get it I, I i to me the appeal of this is that it's something nice and simple there may be people out there who want that big box uh, one other big recommendations i would do is the the base game says that it goes up to six players do not play it with six players. It is the most tedious thing because it Oof. suddenly goes from something where you kind of have a tiny bit of forward, like ability to look forward into what's going to happen to like, there is no point in making any plans. You may as mm. well just grab things because it's just luck whether you are able to pay correct the correct change for something. Um, so I would never play it with six players. I recommend it at like three or four a push. Um, so yeah, it's not quite as versatile as it looks when you look at it. And I do not, I could, I couldn't recommend a version in a massive box with 26 expansions. Like when this is a tiny box for a reasonable price that you got like a solid game from, that seems like a bargain. At the time when you're making it be about twice the cost of that and adding a load of things that I might never want to use. That said, it is on Board Game Arena at the moment, so you can have a bash at this now. Decide whether it's something you really like. And if you really like it and think it could do with a little bit more of a push, there's got to be some great modules in those 40 <laughs> modules, 43, right? 43, right? It does just, the the only grit there is that it seems like you're getting a good, good deal and i was i quite excitedly picked up the carcassonne big box because i've never owned carcassonne and obviously it's a great game um but the big box includes something like 10 different carcassonne expansions maybe more um and obviously it feels cool having all those expansions in my collection behind me right now as we record this podcast any guesses as to how many of those expansions i've played with <laughs> is it zero quins it's one thanks um which one did you play the, with uh river that doesn't even river. count that's in that the base game count. yeah is it yeah. okay um the sheep pigs i played pig? with princess and the dragon a while ago wow um, that's the dumb one yeah right? it, was, it wasn't great <laughs> i've definitely played with a, a couple of like the the, the early big bit slightly bigger box ones so inns and cathedrals and yeah, yeah. Yes. merchants and builders those are both like solid like extra bits of detail to everything those little tiny ones all look like they're ridiculous but but sure my point is that uh which I, I i didn't actually say is that there is slightly more grit in my carcassonne experience now because hearing you say oh play with inns and cathedrals or merchants and builders or whatever um 
I can be like, great. But it, in a big box with all the expansions, it's not easy differentiating between them or yeah. locating them. And unless the big box comes with a rock solid storage solution so that everything can be very strictly decided. I'd almost want Games Trace covers so I don't even have a risk of accidentally delving my fingers into an expansion section of the box unless I want to. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard. What I would want with a game like this, I don't want a big box. I want two boxes. I want a box that is, this is the base game. And I want a box that is, this is all of the things that you can add into this. And I want to be able to have a look at that, read through the rules of some of the expansions and go, ha, huh, that sounds interesting. And pop a tiny box into my medium-sized box <laughs> and take that to a game night. I don't want to be rocking up to a game night saying, hey, this is a good way to spend half an hour to an hour. And then plopping an enormous crate of stuff. And oh, saying, I mean, I'm just going to sort through all of this. Now, this is uh, this isn't right. It does say in our podcast document, you're not supposed to be mean about things you haven't played. And I haven't played <laughs> these expansions. They might be brilliant. Like, you know, they're not. I, I mean, I, I, I say that not because I've played them, but only because the, there's an incredible weight of uh, of um, sort of like community consensus that some of the Alhambra expansions are good, but stop. most are not. Both of I, you stop. You do not know what you're talking about and do you know why because i have a solution to all of this here we go this is secretly you guessed it a legacy game okay because <laughs> imagine okay you're on board game arena you play some alhambra you're like this game is brilliant i love it so much i wish there were some expansions you go over to the kickstarter you see the big box with 43 ferocious expansions and you go i don't know which ones to play with i don't know which ones are good well here's the thing here's what you do you say to yourself i'm going to play 43 games of alhambra and <laughs> each game i will add in one of the expansions and now you have a legacy game just just before this podcast we were praising my city for being the perfect way to do a legacy game by just having a very simple system and adding a little twist into it each time and why not take that burden upon oneself and legacize your big box alhambra expansion I like the way you think. I like the way you presented that idea. I I will... Uh, the only thing holding us back from <laughs> you being the biggest genius is that I don't even think the designers of Alhambra designed any of these expansions <laughs> with a mind to include in the other expansions. Like, actually, I think the Alhambra expansions have been baffling me for years because every time I'd look at Alhambra and try and figure out, what am I looking at? All of the expansions are like weird, discrete mini games that are separate from each other so that they can all be compatible. Right, right. But that means if you play with like 10, it means you're essentially playing 10 games that are all hanging yes. off this like one flimsy. Yes. I mean, I'm kind of into that. That does sound <laughs> hilarious. That sounds really good. I've just been, See, while we've been having this chat, I've just been scrolling through and having a look at some of the expansions. One of the expansions is that you're able to get change. <laughs> but I feel like that defeats the entire point. <laughs> And like what? <laughs> like, oh my god! Oh, but some oh of these gosh. expansions. Okay, so maybe that maybe the twenty six because one of them is that the city walls are now like physical blocks. One of the like quote unquote expansions is just called squares. Oh, hold on, no, they're actually <laughs> squares are a thing that aren't just a shape. Um, but ne nevertheless, <laughs> I I think if you're really... one of the expansions here is just certificates. <laughs> Do you think they just wanted it to sound like there was tons and tons and tons and tons of stuff in the game and they just like, you know, we can say that, you know, a cloth bag is an expansion or, or well, no, it's a, they've upgraded the cloth bag into a tower. Um, 
But no, look, I mean, I think that uh, I think that there's a different. There's there's a couple of things that are just like let's make this a bit nicer in this new edition, and mm. then it's just let's. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it, yeah, there is something about the fact that these things are not going to intersect with each other well, are they? No, and actually, this is a, a whole separate discussion that is pretty interesting, um, where it, it can really dent a game's um, long-term appeal if you release an expansion that is anything less than perfect. Like, I've owned Race for the Galaxy for a very long time, but when I talk to people who've played a lot of Race for the Galaxy as well, they should, because it's an amazing game, they'll say like, oh yeah, the first and second expansions are good, but the third is not. Which, like, and that's true of most games that have a lot of expansions. Some expansions are better than others. The fans decide you should play with some and not others. Um, but that means that when it comes to, like, reprinting that game, you give the designers an unsolvable problem because either they include everything and then you get journalists like us complaining <laughs> or you include some of it and then you get other people complaining. It's like, well, you're not going to, I want everything. You're not going to reprint this legacy expansion yeah. that I like. Mm. It's, it's, it's a bit of a nightmare. Maybe the solution is you have a leaflet in the box that says, hey, only some of these are good. Uh, and you're weird if you play with the other ones. I would write that note for myself <laughs> and put it in my copy of the Alhambra Big Box, and that's maybe the closest thing we've got to a solution. This week, Ava and I were able to play a game that a lot of people are quite excited about, um, which is maybe a, a tease as to what our conclusion is going to be. Um, Merv, The Heart of the Silk Road, designed by Fabio Lopiano and published by Osprey Games. Now, Osprey have been on a bit of a tear publishing games that look gorgeous, and this is maybe them breaking uh, new ground again. Merv is stunning. Um, this is a, a Euro game, so a conflict-free game of um, resource management. Uh, where one to four players are going to be sort of famous, I don't know, people, nobles, it's a Euro game, go figure, <laughs> in um, the long-destroyed city of Merv. Um, briefly, I think one of the most sort of wealthy or um, popular cities in the world. Um, this was in uh, the Middle East and it was destroyed by uh, the Mongols, so it doesn't exist anymore. But in the board game, the city of Merv will come to life. And how will it come to life? through uh cube management basically oh. cubes cubes, um, cubes. Yeah. cubes 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 um so i will say up front ava and i didn't have the best time of this this is the kind of euro game where you know it took us about two hours to finish and afterwards we spent maybe another hour talking about why it didn't quite hang together for us um but it's pretty interesting in principle so what you have in merv is in the center of this beautiful board um, you have a city made up of tiles, and on those tiles are actions. Um, so you have a grid of five by five um, buildings, all with their own action. Then the way you take your turn is, uh, on each turn, you're going to move your little master meeple, your master person who's wandering around the city, to one of the rows or columns, as over the course of four turns, you do a full clockwise loop of the city. As if you're sort of walking around and looking, oh, look, there's a mosque I can visit, or there's a marketplace or a caravanserai or whatever. Um, so you will pick a column, then, oh goodness, this is hard to describe. You will then pick a building in that column to activate. So you might go, I'm going to go to this column and I'm going to go to the mosque. Now, if th there's no um, building of a player's color on that tile, you get to add one of yours. So if you're the first person to go to the, that mosque in the game, you might put your little yellow house on it, showing that you now own that tile. You also get a resource, which is your uh, the titular cubes, not titular, but... Um, <laughs> 
whatever, when you activate a tile. So you don't just get the mask action, you might get a yellow cube or a red cube or a green cube, which sort of abstractly represent different trade goods, I guess. And then the cubes are how you pay for actions. But you've got a kind of combolicious thing here where if you were to activate, again, let's use the mask. If you were to activate that mask tile and place your building on it, you will also get resources from any other tiles with your building on in that row or column. So you're sort of trying to be quite canny and build up um, rows and columns that are quite juicy for you, but not for anyone else. But other people can actually use your buildings and get all the resources from all of your color buildings, but then you get a little benefit from players using your buildings. Um, and what are you doing with all this activation of buildings and collecting cubes? Well, you are trying to collect those as a lot of cubes and then spend them judiciously to do a bunch of stuff that's going to get you victory points. Uh, for example, you can build walls around the city to protect your and other people's buildings. Um, that will push you up a track that lets you get uh, higher level contracts. Contracts give you a, little a lot of victory points and you can fulfill them by collecting scrolls, which is another action, or uh, trade goods, which is another action. Um, you can also visit the palace. Um, and the palace is, uh, features a really cool mechanic, which enables you to take your workers and you can put them into the palace by paying these sort of cubes. And the different sections of the palace represent multipliers on things you might have for the end of the game. So uh, in our game, Ava sent uh, one or maybe two people to the scroll section of the palace, which meant that Ava would get one or two, or if they really focused on it, three victory points for every scroll in their possession. Um, so I would compare Merv to a Vital Lacerda game if you've played any of those, in that it is quite a heavy and difficult thing to teach because really all the different areas of the board are little kind of miniature games that you have to teach individually, but they all feed into one another. So, uh, you know, you might want to fulfill a contract, but for that you need a trade good, for that you need cubes, and for that you need the middle of the board. Also, a thing that's very exciting in the teach but isn't particularly relevant in the game is um, the idea of Mongols destroying the city. Um, which is quite exciting when you learn about it in the manual. Um, the way it works is that at the end of rounds two and three of the three round game, um, the Mongols will attack the city and they will attack from every possible angle, from every column and every row on every side of the city. And so to keep a building safe, you're going to need walls on the column and the row that that building is in. So you get sort of sections of the city that are more defended or less defended. And then if a place is undefended, you either have to pay a ransom to the Mongols, which is more of your precious, precious cubes, or you are going to just lose that building. The tile remains, so the action still remains for players to take, but you lose the kind of combo of cubes that you were building up. Um, I'm keeping this a little bit abstract because um, I don't think we want to talk about it for too long because Ava and I wouldn't necessarily recommend you go out and buy Merv. There's so much in there, isn't there? Like, it, I, yeah. it, it's frustrating. Like, the thing is that what you've just described... Uh, mostly that that core central board the little the square in the middle that you're moving around the outside of and plonking down buildings and popping them off to get extra stuff or even going where your opponent wants to go and stealing their stuff but giving them a little bonus all of that stuff is really interesting really really like solid little little mechanism but the problem is that these five actions that you can take are all their own th little thing and uh, yeah like you say they're a little mini game but they're not really mini games so much as like they're just another track that you can go up or yes, another thing that yes. you can push up and there's always interesting wrinkles and all of it gives you bonuses or most of them give you bonuses somewhere else and uh, but it's all it, 
it the center of it is solid and chunky and i'm really really i'd really quite like to play it again just for that middle bit but <laughs> everything around it is just a little bit baggy so it's kind of hollow but the wrong way round. like <laughs> yes it's very very difficult to teach but after teaching all of the elements no one of the individual elements except for maybe the palace which i did really like that you can choose what you're collecting and then get multipliers for it um i thought that was really interesting um it's because it's such a public way of committing and saying i am going to put a guy here another guy here which means now i'm going to get three victory points for every you know trade good that i have at the end of the game and everybody else is going to get none yeah. like that is a because there's only three slots in each sort of room in the palace i thought that was that was pretty satisfying but baggy i think is the word like very complicated to get into but then when you're in merv no one element of it was particularly exciting for me it felt like a, a lot of graft for not an enormous amount of payoff yeah i mean i i really like the central thing and i think that the graft there was interesting and and solid and and i really enjoyed like things little things like the fact that when you're building a wall you've got to decide where to put it and help helping yourself gets you less than if you help someone else so actually you can almost collaborate a bit on that but it's not i mean the thing that there's kind of two things that you pointed out that i think are really worth mentioning which was first of all that like i thought of the contracts that were along one side as being one other mini game when actually i think the amount of points that are on offer there and the reliability of those points mean that that's probably what's going to win you the game and everything else should be yeah. focused on that which kind of takes away from that like intermeshing thing um and the other thing is you've already kind of alluded to a bit is that like yeah i didn't even twig until afterwards and you said it but this mongols the walls and the mongols is so interesting and it takes up an amount of your a, a real amount of your thinking about whether is it worth protecting that what am i willing to do with that and then you realize that yeah you pointed out that it's a three round game and it happens at the end of the <laughs> second and third round the third round it doesn't really matter because what was interesting about that was that if you lose some stuff you've got less benefit later on whereas at the end of the game it's just you lose some stuff you get one less victory point so it's just like okay i can afford to lose those points so i don't really care about it anymore which means it's yeah. only the end of the second round where there's any reason to care about the mongols and yeah it's I really interesting at that point but also i'd spent half of my game shoring myself up there for that problem and then yeah and then i lost because <laughs> that <laughs> i didn't really need to do that because it's not actually as bad as it initially looks and yeah there's, there's just a lot of stuff like that where it's like this is a really nice idea and it doesn't impact my decision rate or it, it impacts the game disproportionately to how big a part of the board or bigger part of your head it is I think there, there there might be there is a lot of interesting mechanics it's probably really good if you want to start people down the road to playing like like Vita Lacerda style mishmash of mechanics or clogging together in weird little clockwork machines it's probably like a good training wheels for that but I don't I don't think it would be a good training wheels necessarily because well if I wanted to train someone up to play heavy Lacerda and to be clear I do not <laughs> but I would I would suggest Vinhas um which is kind of 
to me, I always think of Vinhos, which is spelled V-I-N-H-O-S, as the Vital Lacerda game that pushed him off the deep end because he made something that was so big and complicated but really did work. And it's almost like that gave him permission to then make even more heavy, complicated stuff, which I don't want to go near with a barge bowl. <laughs> but for me, Vinhos is the entry into that man's canon. Yeah. And Merv, I, I, I simply don't think it's... I don't think it's it's good enough for how heavy and complicated the teachers, even though it looks beautiful and I really wanted to like it. I will say one nice thing about it, though, which is something we haven't mentioned, one of many mechanics in this game we haven't mentioned, is there's a lot of camels in Merv. Little beautiful wooden camel pieces, which interact differently with every different minigame. So you can use camels to buy stuff at the camel market in the middle of the board. You can use camels to sort of extend your trade routes to get more distant trade goods. And then they go to the spice road, which is a separate mechanic. But what's really nice is how the camels work on the spice road is very similar to how the camels work in Jaipur. No, that's not correct. Basically, the camels in Jaipur, which is another game about getting trade goods that features camels, have some rules crossover with how the camels work in Merv. And I don't know if that's deliberate. But if it was, I've got to commend the designer, Fabio <laughs> Lopiano, for having like an an for using an animal in a similar way to how that animal's used in another very popular game. Just, it's such a good reminder for how the camels work in Merv yeah. um, that I, I thought that was that was really neat. And if it was an accident, what a happy accident. I think it's really nice. I think I, 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 w I would play it again. I would like to actually see it with more than two players because I think that the, I know you really don't want to because you think it would take far too long and you're probably right, but I'd like to try it with more players because um the co collaboratively controlled fake third player i think made the game like slightly slightly more baggy than than it would have been or rather just more annoying because it was quite easy to you you had to kind of work out how the other player was going to be able to mess up your move with that thing before yeah. you could make certain decisions and it wasn't really a part of the core decision, the core thing. But like that central game is so good. What this feels like to me. I, I disagree. Wait, wait, no, that's not what you said when we played the game at all. I, because we <laughs> talked about when the game was finished, we talked Euro about that central fight. game of like. Euro fight. Euro fight. Euro. <laughs> no. That's the opposite of what Eurogames is supposed to be. Um, no, because we talked about how the Mongols attacking doesn't actually really mechanically work in a way that it is promised yeah. when you start playing the game. But also the combo of getting buildings and then collecting cubes didn't wasn't particularly interesting and neither was the action selection like it that central game when we finished our game of merv you and i agreed that it it was in theory interesting but wasn't actually balanced in a way that meant if you cut everything else out that game would be good by itself i think that i need to play it again to know for sure but to me it felt like there was some really nice ideas in that like the the, the decision making process that i was putting into deciding where to go next was really solid and interesting Okay. I think that all of the bits, the way that everything else added up into what I was actually weighing up in that decision-making process wasn't quite right. It wasn't, it didn't quite land. Um, and to some extent, like, I don't know, to me, this feels like someone's got the Alhambra big box and told you that that's the entire game. And being like, <laughs> you have to learn all of these bits there's a solid game in the middle of it, but it's buried underneath all of these things. I still think that there's a really interesting game in the middle of it, but it needs to be, I don't know, it needs to be five turns and the bits around it need to be less. And the, the yeah, I, I, I did, it didn't land. It didn't land. 
It, it didn't. I will say, you know, you've you've made me realize Merv, the Heart of the Silk Road, does feel like someone's teaching you a board game and the expansion for your first play. Yeah. Like, because there's all this disparate, weird stuff, and you there's there's almost so much of the game that you're gonna forget or not interact with one corner of it in your play because there's there's just so much. Yeah. And um, if you pick but, the wrong corner to skip, or if you pick the wrong corner to focus on, uh, that's the it other is thing, really yeah. unsatisfying. Like I thought, oh, that those <laughs> caravan that caravan stuff looks really interesting. The spice road, I love a bit of spice road, and uh, so I focused quite hard on making sure that that would pay off and get me the best. And then we realised a bit too late that I was never going to make it pay off because the wrong cards had come out and that wasn't quite, quite right. And and the scrolls are actually really boring, but you kind of do want to get them at some point because they, like, it's just like, oh, if you buy scrolls, you can do everything else or you can do some of the other things a bit better and they get your little bonuses. It's like, oh, that's great. But it's also just like, I've got scrolls and all they really do is let me fulfill contracts, but I forgot about everything else. And maybe that's because I can't, look at this game as like the entire these are all of the mechanics feeding into it and i was focusing too much on trying to cheat by saying i'm just going to learn about this bit and that's going to be enough to get me there but if doing that is that unsatisfying yeah i don't know i don't know to, to my ears as someone that hasn't played the game it sounds like what you two are describing generally is a game where you've got all of these bells and whistles all these extraneous systems that you can dip into but if you fully commit to one of those systems you will lose and the only way to like actually do well is to do a little bit of everything which sounds unsatisfying yeah yes. it's unsatisfying it's clever if you can do that well like you know you're better at the game and maybe i'm just rubbish at this game but yeah. <laughs> um should we let's let's round off this podcast by talking about a euro game which i believe we're all pretty hot on there yes uh let's get let's really i'm ready to get jiggy with it i oh, that is not a sentence that i think will ever be said about beyond the sun again <laughs> so let's talk about beyond the sun designed by dennis k chan and published by rio grand games yes let's Shall I do the little teach? Shall I tell Tom, the people at home what it's all about? Give us a little teach. I would teach. love for you to do just a little teach. Beyond the Sun is a game about tech trees. In that most of the board, uh, most of what you're looking at for the game is just one massive tech tree. This isn't a game where a tech tree is a small part of it. It's like the basis of the entire game. Uh, but in fact, that's kind of misleading already because it's a game of two halves. The tech tree is huge, but then the other thing that you're doing is a little bit of an area majority game uh, with these little ships that you're putting down, these little cubes. Um, so, Tom, I've, I need story. Where am I? Yeah. What's happening? I believe the teach when I said last time was, you're humans. Uh, there's been a war and war in this universe is good because it led to progress or something oh, yes. like that. <laughs> like there's been a massive nuclear apocalypse and everyone's done really well out of it, turns out. Um, <laughs> or something like that. It, it's, a, it's a weird, it's a weird this setting. Is a game, it is a game of like, bleak science fiction in many ways that... <laughs> yeah if yeah. if you want it to be bleak science fiction it can be incredibly bleak <laughs> you know um, i think beyond this the way i might describe it is like it's it's science and technology but viewed from that like 1999 angle where you see tech as its own thing with all the human impact removed mm. like the, the like humans exist in beyond the sun but they're like a resource to be shuttled around <laughs> god knows how their lives are going like this is a game <laughs> that just focuses on well the tech's more advanced so they must be happier yes pretty much but besides all of that 
it's a good game like <laughs> it's so good it's, it's so good it's very good um i'll, I'll try and do a, a slightly more succinct teach uh it's a worker placement game with just one tall hexagonal uh worker throughout the game you'll be using that work to activate spaces that'll let you collect two main resources which are people and rocks uh, and using them in various <laughs> ways to do uh, one of two things. One thing is colonizing planets on this little spaceboard by sending, turning those people into ships and sending them out to do colonizing planets. Or, or the other thing that you will be doing is doing a tech tree to do the whole rest of the game a lot better. Um, and it's a really, I think the the core thing that I love about this game is it's it's a very simple economic management thing. And that you've got humans, you've got crates, you've got rocks. And you've got ships and they're all faces on these little cubes um uh well the rocks aren't but they're all faces on these little cubes and just manipulating those cubes is all of the game you know turning a, a crate into a human into a ship or turning a human and a rock into a tech and so on and so forth and, and it's a really simple economy that is then immediately ruffled by this huge tech tree well not huge it's actually pretty manageable um there are four stages of tech and each one you have to have prerequisites to jump up that tree and those techs just tweak the game in such fascinating ways that are very immediately easy to pass and available to everyone at mostly all times I, I will just round off that excellent teach by mentioning that um the game doesn't come with that many techs but they are entirely random so yes. Whoever explores the first rung of the tech tree, um, sort of like, okay, we've got these four basic technologies, but I'm going to go one step higher. You get to draw two cards from that. Like mm. if you research level two, you draw two level twos, you pick which one you want, and then you put it on the tech tree for everybody. So while you're the only person who've researched it, if anyone else researches that branch of the tech tree, they're researching the, check, the tech that you chose that you have already. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And and there's something in, our, in the game that we played, uh, Quinn's, recently... Um, there was something wonderful about the fact that you just were determined to absolutely propel yourself up that tech tree and research like a bit of everything. And I sort of felt like by around like turn five or six, I sort of felt like that's my lot for some reason. <laughs> I was like, that's me. I've researched enough tech and I'm going to focus really hard <laughs> on, on the combat board. But I realized... But that's valid. Well, it's valid. But I realized at the end that if I'd have... Because in our game, it was really interesting because you you did squabble around that that combat board but you were mainly focused on the economic puzzle and the tech puzzle i think whereas i was mm. trying to make sure i had majority on all of the planets and colonize them and, and that would be my path to victory uh, actually an important thing to note here is, is that the two achievements that are in every game are achievement one is doing really well at colony and achievement two is doing really well at tech so it's clearly pushing you towards those being you know it, everything in this game is, is is around those two systems and how they wash into each other but mm. regardless the thing that was interesting about our game is that there are four kinds, four colors of tech. There's green, which is good for like making food for your people. There's blue, which is good for making more rocks and stuff like that. And there's yellow, which is good for colony. And there's red, which is good for military. And we had research into all branches except for the military branch. It just wasn't really touched at all. And if I'd have made that jump, if I'd have just sort of had the imagination to just put a little bit of time into researching another red tech, I would have been doing so much better on that colony board. But I was just hamstrung by this thing where I went, oh, well, I've got my lot. I don't need to innovate any more than, <laughs> than I should. Like, what's, what's, what's what I'm doing now is working for me. I didn't think that I could jump into this new rung, jump up to the next ladder of tech in a, in a way that probably would have propelled my game 
forward. I, I mean, it definitely the game definitely tells you that like this is a game about tech because like the majority of like you've got a massive <laughs> board for this is the tech tree with the worker placement on, and then mm. you've got this tiny board beside it that's for this is for <laughs> shuffling spaceships around, and it's a little area control thing where whoever's got the most on a colony on a on a planet controls it and gets a little bonus while they've got that there but then you have to control it in order to be able to colonize it which is another action that happens elsewhere mm. and it, it, but i really like that little sideboard that little <laughs> like i think it's really really clever to just have something that considering how like dry and contingent this central board is and it's not really that dry because actually all of the texts have very specific names that are kind of like it is bleak grim technology and it is like <laughs> speak you... for yourself in my game i invented androids and then immediately afterwards gave them civil rights. i gave androids <laughs> civil rights too but what it means <laughs> apparently is basically ah yeah rocks are now people <laughs> which is oh actually no it was super messed up because <laughs> the the android card like enables you to do like marginally better at mining when you invent androids but when you invent civil rights it says okay any circumstance where you would lose pop it's kind of abstracted away some pretty horrible stuff yeah, now yeah. i think about it but it says in when you unlock android civil rights the effect is if you have this tech any game effect that would have a cost of human beings you can instead pay with metal or rocks as tom <laughs> says which means that like suddenly all these like oh i can previously i colonizing distant worlds is hard because it, i pay one set of people who live there and one set of people who die and now i can just pay for the people who live there and some rocks which kind of means that the side effect of android civil rights is they just get put in the worst <laughs> places that humanity can go yeah 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 yeah. no it's kind of like you've now got civil rights which means that we can exploit you as the working class <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> The rulebook does explain that, like, when you're paying a human to colonize a planet, you're paying a human to go and, like, live there. And supposedly, that's nice in this future. The thing is, obviously, that also human experiments, the cost is paying a human. So you have to read between the lines on each one of those. And it is like there's something I really, really like. I think the... So these little cubes that you've got that represent most of the resources in the game. So they've got a person on one face... Um, a box on another face, and then we're four calling faces. them cubes. Can we just say what they are? Which is dice. dice yeah, dice. Know, this is a weird thing of playing in TTS where they don't quite look like dice. Um, but yeah, so they are they're dice. They're six-sided dice. You never roll. You never roll them. It's not a dice if you don't roll it. Yeah. Tom told me there's a tech in the game which does see you rolling. There's wow. an event. There's one event in the game, I think, which has you roll all your <laughs> roll all your people. Wow. <laughs> wow but this is it like so so yeah so the other four sides are levels one two three and four of spaceships so it's kind of upgrading the spaceships but what this means like, I, I don't know whether i don't know whether the designers have like a really dry sense of humor like we do or <laughs> didn't quite think about how people talk about a game when they're at the table because when you're there and you're saying right i turn this box into a human <laughs> And then you're saying, right, oh no, that human's turning back into a box again. I'm just going to put them in the box and put them there. Or like, yeah, this human becomes a spaceship. Like all of these things can happen. And yes, they make sense. But they're also like, that's the language that you're using. You're definitely using I, the language of like, right, I get rid of these humans. I lose these humans. And now I've got a place. Ah, oh, Andrews <laughs> have got civil rights now. So I'm just going to pay for rocks with rocks instead. Like the language of it is really bleak and nasty as a result of that and i love it for it 
<laughs> I agree. I think intentionally or not, I do really like this as a game about tech because, you know, the, the tech is all very plausible and kind of grim, but it's the way that you research the tech in that game. It's like, it, it's got some of the sort of like slightly grim technologist stuff we see in the 21st century of people researching tech because they can and they are interested in it and they want to. But then what happens next is like, well, that's not up to me, is it? That's just <laughs> like, it's a very economic driven view of humanity where all you want to do is colonize planets and research tech to get profits and to, you know, have more homes for humans. But it's so divorced from like the emotionality of the thing or the ethics of the thing. Oh, well, it's, which it's is kind of... It's, it's not even just that it's divorced from the ethics. It's that like you go there, you, 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 you get this thing, right, I'm going to do some science. I go here, a random event happens. Um, and then you take you dig through the thing and you get two cards and you then have a choice and you get to decide whether this thing happens and this thing happens and whether you do, humanity discovers heavy lasers or you know faster yeah, yeah whether are we going to start building megastructures or are you going to start um enslaving <laughs> like doing human <laughs> experiments and you look at it in exactly the way that like a tech mogul does and goes right what is more efficient for me and my economic status <laughs> yes, right, exactly. right this second? Ah, it's that. That's exactly And it. then you've shaped humanity's future <laughs> forever as a result. It's like, I saw Elon Musk tweeting the other day, you know, like trying to push for like the Mars colony, you know, stuff, like, or talking about it. But it's like, and I was just so struck by this sickening thought of like, but you're not going to live there, are you? You're not thinking about the babies that are going to be born on Mars into the worst life. <laughs> Anyway, that's a side Yeah, I was yeah. going to say, we, I think we've definitely, uh, like, I really want to, to stress to any listeners uh, out there that that this is all good in this game. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, here's the thing. The fact that we're engaging with the theme so seriously is because we have had so much fun playing this I game. I think this game is, is brilliant. I think that there's so, like, there's so many things to talk about in this game that are great that it can't be contained to this to this podcast almost. Like, there's there's the wonderful surprise of, of going up that tech tree and there's the huge amount of replayability and the randomized cards and the way that you navigate that system every time and where you choose to place your focus. There's slightly asymmetrical player boards and things like that so that each player is going to have a slightly different way of looking at the world and thus breathe this kind of diversity in in approach to the game each time like it's fantastic it, it's a game that's the, so sleek but so jammed full of interesting decisions each time yeah like the rules explanation is relatively light for how satisfying every action in the game is like taking those boxes off your board in your like two level indented punch boards oh. covered in beautiful colored cubes <laughs> where you like take that every time you get a human population you get to take a box off and rotate it to a human side that's awesome pushing the little ship dice around the um the space board with the different planets is really interesting and cute um it's it's while we talk about it as a worker placement game that only has one worker what i do really like is the area majority of space is such that you can you get a little bonus if you have the most levels of ship at a planet but someone else can push more ships in there and then take that bonus away from you if they colonize that planet they actually shunt your ships back into the middle of the map which is maybe not what you want which is this lovely gluey way to do denial in an economic game like 
I can't, usually I get quite annoyed by area control games when people muscle in an area where I'm at. But in Beyond the Sun, I just quite enjoyed other players like rubbing up into areas. and It's really satisfying, I, I, isn't it? It's weird. That it's, yeah. it's got like such a direct form of conflict in it. And it mostly feels like, oh, you've pushed me out again. Well done. <laughs> like Exactly. What, how, what board game I, alchemy is magic that? to make that. Up. And like, actually, like, so the game that I play, I played a game with Matt and Pip. And during that, like we got in in the towards the very very end of the game me and matt i i started pushing towards this thing it's like right i've been the only person who can get onto this planet for ages because i was the only person with high enough tech to do it so i'd put it off for a while because no one else could do it and then i pushed made a big push into there ready to terraform it and matt moved in and it was like matt (laughs) matt did you really just do that because that's right And and he's like i know it's fine he's like the thing is I really know that I shouldn't get into like a war of attrition with you, but I think I have to. I'm sorry. <laughs> and I just started pushing more and more people. And he was like, I think I'm going to win this war of attrition. And I'm like, yeah, I know, but I need you to pay enough for that to do it. <laughs> so we're having this big war over this thing. Meanwhile, over on the other side of the galaxy, Pip is just very quietly winning the entire game. <laughs> and that, that cost It cost us a little bit turn because we decided to do this thing and it felt like the right thing to do. And it was never that hostile. It was never that like, it, what, there wasn't an, uh, it was aggressive because it was a war, you know, we were literally like making <laughs> yeah. it more and more. But it, it made sense. And it was actually just kind of hilarious and wonderful that it basically won Pip the game because we got into this little bit of beef. And it was, I don't know, that sort of stuff should be really irritating. But it wasn't. It It was great. It was satisfying. It was fun. It was like, this is the right thing to do, even though I know it's the wrong. Like, I know that it won't get me what I want, but I still need to do it because that was the thing that I was pursuing. And it makes sense to keep on doing. I don't know. I really like this game. Tom, what are you, what are your sort of like top notes of things you love about it the most? I think I was thinking about how, like, what player count I would sit this game at, like, what, who I would specifically. And I think we've been playing a lot of it on TTS, so I think that the higher player counts are naturally clunkier when you play with more people. But I think this is a game that I would easily play at any player count because it's a game where each turn is so simple. Like, literally, you you do an action and then you produce stuff and then you check if you've got an achievement. And you can literally get it down in, in seconds. At two players, it just whips along so quickly. And each turn is so interesting because you can see so directly what everyone else, what your opponent is doing at the table. Like, I think one of the most fascinating things that happened in our game is when you're transparent about what your engine can do. We came to a point where I had, like, loads of ships and, like, because I was doing lots of, like, sort of random events almost, my whole gimmick was that I was trying to sort of play quite fast and loose with just grabbing as much stuff as possible through placing those colony discs so lots of one-time bonuses i I managed to field a massive fleet of ships um but they were all weak (laughs) because i had no means to upgrade (laughs) them whereas your whole thing was that you had lots of means to upgrade your ships but not many to field them the fact that the resource management is so fun means we mentioned vital lacerda earlier which he's the designer of you realize your engine that you've built can't produce a certain resource or get you access to a certain place and then you have this oh my goodness how how do i do that Mm. again whereas because beyond the sun all the acquisition and spending of resources is so juicy and satisfying when you did like i was telling you with delight that my engine couldn't make ships because (laughs) i knew the process of figuring out okay well then what tech do i need to make ships i knew that process would be exciting so this is actually a euro game where when you discover you can't do something 
it's actually a feel good moment at least for me because it's i'm kind of delighted at the weird corner i've wedged myself into and i'm excited at the puzzle of how to get out again yeah and there are really weird corners to wedge yourself into as well like you can really run out of stuff and be like there isn't a viable way of doing that like the first time that we played which was a game that we didn't didn't finish i was like oh no there's no way to make people anymore what what can i do what can i do i don't know what to do and i found this way to like redistribute my crates across my resource board so that i would get a turn where i would get like five people in one go and it was like so satisfying and delightful even though what had happened was i'd got immensely stuck and had to like bash my head against this problem for enough turns for like the right circumstance to come out and it's it's I don't know. It's weird. We're getting really excited about this game and we've talked about like how heavy thematically and it's it's really hard to play because it is really dry. Like when you look it's at so it. so dry, yeah. It's like, ah, uh, this is a tech... It, it's literally, you're building a tech tree. The, everything's got a prerequisite. You've got to put people in the right place. You need to use resources everywhere and it's a grind and it's like... But it feels smooth. It feels like it's all sleek. of the rough edges have been have mm. taken off. It's so, so sleek. There's so little wasted space in it in terms of, haha, if you pardon the pun. Um, there's, <laughs> there's so little wasted space in the in in the teach, in like the each player's turn, in rules overhead. Like it's so elegant and it's such, I think the thing that made me so excited about it is that in, I initially, when I heard this was a tech tree game, I was not that excited about it. And I think that's because I have so much baggage of tech trees in games being superfluous systems that are tricky to sort of pass and navigate. And they're spiced to those systems, but as they ramp up, like I think Komet is a really good example where Komet's like grab bag of powers is almost like a tech tree in and of itself. But towards the end of the game, everyone's got so many powers that it's it's hard to understand. And that's fine in Komet because it's a delightful punch up of blood and nonsense like it's it, it's it's like cthulhu wars where it's a whole game of you can do what and that sort of thing yeah but it becomes hard to plan strategically in that game and it's more thematic than it is thinky perhaps towards the end um i, lo- I like Kemet, but it does become boggy whereas in beyond the sun because that central system is so elegant, because the tech tree is the game, it's so fascinating trying to navigate it and seeing how other players' engines work. It's like at two, you have that direct look into their engine. With three, you can visibly see everyone puzzling out the game differently. And with four, I think that you'd have so much there's not enough room for people to do the same thing. So you have a complete diversity in the way that you're approaching the game. Like it's just fascinating. Well, what I that actually brings me on to the one thing I wanted to say that I love more than anything about Beyond the Sun, which is um, how I chose to spend our game was, as you said, very tech focused. But what that enabled me to do and what I got such a kick out of is if you're the player who's researching a lot of tech and, dis- and drawing new tech cards from the deck and deciding, you know, which one is going to go in the tree you're deciding on the shape of the game for mm. everybody. And what's so cool about that is it is it's a dance that's fun on both sides. Like for me, I love being like, okay, this is the kind of game we're gonna play because also we haven't even mentioned there's some gentle asymmetric player powers, which are really neat. I played a corporation that wanted ore and there's all kinds of other stuff. <clears throat> Tom got a free dreadnought if he had enough people. <laughs> um, but I so liked, you know, looking at this tabula rasa of a board and then being like, okay, in this game, oh yeah, I choose this one. Colony Colonizing is going to be easier, you know, or whatever. But then that's fun for everybody else because they have the bonus of not having to go in, you know, of take a punt on being like, I'm going to research tech even though I don't know what I'm going to get. Mm. They have the bonus of getting to research tech where they know what they're going to get, but it's what the other player decided they were going to get. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's almost so, I cut you choose, isn't it? Like... <laughs> yeah yeah and I, it was that was so fun especially in a two-player game of me getting to pick tech that 
I knew Tom didn't need. Yeah. And actually, that's extra annoying because uh, the way you research like a level four tech, which is the crazy, ridiculous, super exciting cards at the very top of the tech tree, which you might not even get to in a game of Beyond the Sun, you need um, two level two techs from the one below. So I was having a lovely time in a two player game picking techs that Tom didn't want, but he would have to research <laughs> anyway in order to have that as a prerequisite for level four. Yeah. It's fab. Juicy. 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 I do want to say, right, I want to go, I want to, we, we've been like, incredibly effusive after we were really quite hard on hard on another another euro game and i do want to say one negative thing that i think is worth saying about this is i literally got a spreadsheet up on a separate computer for calculating my score at the end of this game there's so many things you get scores for there's no score track like you don't need a spreadsheet i could just do counting but i am i wasn't able to add 17 and 26 earlier this podcast so <laughs> you know don't i'm not saying you need a spreadsheet to do it i'm saying that, like i have never done that before but and it was partly just because the tool was there but it was also like oh there's a lot of things that i'm gonna have to keep track of here yeah there's not a score pad i don't think there maybe there I is think, a score uh, pad yeah, on the thing i don't think there is in oh maybe there is in the game in the physical possibly box game. i think it definitely it, it cuts both ways there because i think there are there are literally so many scoring conditions but and that's that's a positive thing because it feels like literally anything you do in the game is going to net you points in some way, which is nice. But yeah, ultimately, then having to do all that counting at the end as you source every single place that you get points is kind of annoying. Yeah, I would say I, if you have the game in front of you and if you're playing Beyond the Sun to a level where you actually really enjoy it, I would probably guess that most people would not have trouble adding up their score. Like it didn't take me nine, more than... 60 or 90 seconds to add up my score i don't think it's as bad as a nouveau rosenberg game to do that i don't i don't know i mean it, it's possibly because like during my score one of the elements i was scoring for meant i had to get the average of something uh, oh okay what? yeah like yeah. so there was a level four tech that meant you had to get these two numbers and average them and it's like that's fine i know how to do that math but also when you're already trying to add up like eight different categories yeah. of stuff and there's other people doing the same thing in the background <laughs> You brought that on yourself, though. <laughs> <laughs> I do want to say, I do want to say that, like, while that is true, at the end of the game, there's a load of counting and it's a bit of a faff. It also never bothered me during the game because I was quite happy not knowing and trusting that I would be getting points for all of the things mm. I would be doing. And the sort of efficiency and the sort of satisfaction you're getting isn't about getting... As, as, I mean, obviously, you're trying to get as many points as possible, but like, it's less about how many points you're going to get and more about can I achieve this thing? Can I do that thing? Can I beat this person to that bit of the race? Can I get that? Can I make myself more efficient? And it's so satisfying during the process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, yeah, I don't know. It doesn't matter. It's a little you bit lose of time track at the of end it. of the game where you work out. You lose track of the actual score, and then it's a surprise who wins. If I had to come up with a negative, it would be that in the game Tom and I played, we thought we were level pegging, and one of us had significantly more points than the other, which was a kind of weird moment, you know, because to to realize that the things we were getting points for was different to what we thought we were getting points for that's not great it's just that the act of playing the game was so fun that we didn't really mind that no. that was a slightly bum note at the end i mean i, I mean i think that like because quinn's won uh, our game by a significant well, no one a pretty significant margin but then you were saying that it's because that that last turn you you had the sort of precise resources oh i got needed. lucky yeah but i also think that it's one of those things where like i know that 
the reason that I lost that game is because I just could have done the thing I was doing better and I was I was blinded by I think it's so interesting that when I was playing a game about tech trees I the, the reason that you won that game is because you took the risk and innovated on more exciting things and if I'd have done that I'm sure I would have been able to do my side of the game like infinitely better and I would have been able to expand upon that but the reason that I fell behind was because I just like I just stopped thinking ahead <laughs> i stopped going I, I i let myself fall into a habit of being like right i've made these action spaces i can do those and i can reliably get points but i didn't think how can i innovate on that and and get further on which is oddly thematic for a game about the uh the, the endless pursuer of the new <laughs> absolutely um, absolutely um speaking of uh, pursuing stuff we should mention the first print run of beyond the sun has sold out from the publishers so you might be able to find copies of it if you're very lucky uh, on websites or in uh, brick and mortar stores um but we do uh, have word from publishers rio grande games that not only is another print run coming so there'll be a bunch of new copies of beyond the sun um entering shops next year in 2021 um where we'll be timing our actual video review so you'll see mm -hmm. it on camera then they're also working on the first expansion for it already um because it's clearly such a smash hit and it's got a lot of positive word of mouth so beyond the beyond the sun will soon be available in some form i i really hope it's called that beyond beyond the sun or, or, or like beyond the sun colon beyond the other noun <laughs> other like beyond the event horizon or whatever yeah uh, so that's uh that's all uh guess I, that's a good uh good thing to look forward to in 2021 isn't it both our review and the game and the expansion uh, we have been running long so before we wrap this up I should just uh, quickly uh, thank my co-host Ava and Tom thank you Ava thank you thank you Tom thank you great uh, <laughs> and I should mention that Shut Up and Sit Down is currently having its one of its twice yearly donation drives um, we don't like to mention it very much uh, but Shut Up and Sit Down is mostly funded by donations it's what enables us to stay happy and healthy as we put out more content and better content than we've ever uh, done before in our nine years we've got a very exciting 2021 uh, hopefully we will be um, doing a video every week, a stream every week, and a podcast every week. So if you enjoy this podcast and you want to try and find us getting a bit more ambitious with it, um, you can do all of that at shutupandsitdown.com slash donate if you think that the content that we produce is worth paying for to a greater or lesser or greater extent. <laughs> uh, and on that note, actually, uh, we should stress that uh, Shut Up and Sit Down has and always wants to provide our content for free for everybody, whether they can afford it or not, wherever they live in the world. Um, but that only works if the people who can afford it and who do think we're worth paying a dollar to do so. And also, added bonus, um, if you want to watch a video with me being in the sea for several minutes for comedy purposes, <laughs> you can see that on our YouTube channel. Uh, over on Shut Up and Sit Down on YouTube. Uh, thank you very much, you two, for talking to me about board games. I would say... do it by choice. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why you need that's to... That's why you need Tom... to send your donations to make Tom keep on talking. <laughs> he doesn't me. really like the rest of us. It's harsh, but like... I know, I know, but he's such a professional mm, in making such us... A professional feel that we and are it's loved. hard because we all really like him it's it's, it's i know cruel, it's really, really. awkward so i spoke to tom on the phone just yesterday i said tom do you want to come to my house and he said how much are you gonna pay me and i went <laughs> oh well it depends on how the donation drive goes so <laughs> head over to shut up slash donate if you want me to be able to see tom in any way <laughs> thanks everybody <laughs> bye goodbye bye. <laughs>